Allison, Zach, thank you. Man, thanks for leading us and uh, for sharing your giftedness with us. I was thinking of that last song we sang together. Um, the, the birth of Christ we celebrate, um, but if it wasn't for the death and resurrection of Christ, we probably wouldn't celebrate this birthday, right? And so thank you for reminding us of that. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning and next week and um, look forward to sharing with you from God's Word. If you've got your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6. Uh, we're going to talk about deacons. Um, but before I do that, I want to say thank you for your partnership in the gospel with the Colorado Baptist Convention as well as with your own Royal Gorge Baptist Association, with the North American Mission Board, International Mission Board. My wife Carol and I were North American Mission Board missionaries for 12 years. And thank you for your support and your gifts and your giving and prayers uh, for us. Uh, we could not have done what we did without those things. Um, so we're going to talk about deacons, a rare servant leader. Oftentimes you don't see the word servant and leader put together, but I think the Bible and particularly Jesus and the early deacons were certainly that. A little girl was asked the question, what is a deacon? And she replied, oh, that's something you set on a hill and put on fire. And I thought, well, that's not a good definition, but it's a great analogy. <laughs> I think every deacon should be on a hill proclaiming the gospel and on fire for the Lord, right? So I kind of like that definition. So I'm going to stick with that. Most of you know, you've been in the church world, that the church will never exceed the commitment of its leadership. And that's just not from the pastoral role, but it's from all the leaders in the church serving and doing what God has called them to do. I've had the privilege of meeting with your leadership team numerous times over the last two or three years, and we've talked many times about helping Christ's followers discover their gift mix, discover their passion, and then equipping and empowering them to do those things. Everything that goes on in the church should not go through the pastor, nor should it go through the pastor's wife. You have a ministry, you have a giftedness, and God wants to use that. And one of those gifts is, in a very real way, the deacon, a servant leader. So in Acts chapter 6, let me kind of give you the background. Most of you, again, I know are pretty familiar with Acts. But in Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost. Pentecost has happened. Peter shares the gospel. 3,000 people are saved. The church, according to the end of Acts chapter 2, is all of one accord. They're actually in agreement. The Lord added to their number daily. The Spirit of God uh, has made known, has been made known throughout Jerusalem. Peter and John were imprisoned for communicating the gospel. In fact, they were commanded not to do it again. And of course, they did it anyway. And they taught in the name of Jesus. The believers boldly shared Christ with everybody they came in contact with. Even in the midst of great power, though, and great ministry, Satan raises his ugly head in chapter 5. We're introduced to a couple named what? Ananias and Sapphira, right, who lied. And God took care of it. Um, and then the apostles, not only did it stop there, they were now imprisoned. And, and, but the angel of the Lord came, opened up the doors, let them out of prison, and they continued to share the gospel. Um, they actually were brought back to the Sanhedrin and said again, don't be doing this. 
Don't be a beacon, I guess, right? Don't be that. Chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And that word name in my version and your name is probably capitalized in the name of Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Now we get to chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. They were good Baptists. They knew how to eat, right? So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. Verse 7, so then the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So, we have the first five books, seeing all that God did in the early church in Jerusalem. There were probably at this point, in Acts chapter 6, 25,000 members of the church. 25,000. Imagine pastoring that many. Holy smokes, right? 25,000. How in the world did they do discipleship? That's a whole different sermon. But the ministry of deacon now begins in Acts chapter 6. The church was multiplying, not just adding. I mean, exponential growth, right? They went from 3,000 to probably around 25,000, and that's pretty conservative. Most churches today in America are experiencing an internal illness. Their energy is being sapped internally rather than reaching out beyond the walls of the church. That's why 80 80 to 83% of the churches in America are dying or plateaued. Because we have forgotten what it is we're supposed to be about. The going part. Go and make disciples, not y'all come. So... They had kind of developed, the, the churches in America have kind of developed a maintenance mindset. I, I have the privilege of speaking all over the country, and I, and I encounter churches that are kind of stuck, and they have this maintenance mindset, and we forget. Again, I'm, I, I forget too. Okay, I'm a fellow struggler, right? A lot of what I do is in the church world. The Bible says that we're supposed to be fishers of men, and we settle for being keepers of the aquarium. And that's shame on us. I'm, I'm in the us, right? Okay. So we spend so much energy in the church arguing about peripheral things. I'll never forget, we, we built a new church building, Greg, and we, we were talking about the carpet. Exactly. The color of the carpet. Well, God solved that. He gave us 2,000 square feet of free carpet. Free is my favorite color. (laughs) Nobody fussed about the color of the carpet. 20,000 square feet of carpet squares. So we bought chairs to match that carpet. (laughs) 
because it was free, right? You know, we, we at Baptist, we're pretty practical most of the time. So I, I want to suggest to you this morning that in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says that they, they complained. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the number of disciples were increasing, right? The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were, not, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. That word complained, I really like the King James Version. Does anyone have a King James Version? What, what's, what word is there, Bob? No, but the complaining part, the verse before. The disciples were multiplied and arose murmuring. Murmuring. I love that word. That's such a preachy word. You know, I could spend 30 minutes just on that word. Because we don't use that word very often anymore, do we? But we know what it means. Anybody here not know what it means? I'll help you. Murmuring, right? Complaining. In the Greek, it's actually the Greek word gagosmos which means an internal illness, a grumbling, a um, grudging. You ever had a grudge, right? They, they were murmuring. They were complaining. And this internal illness, what did it do? It stopped the multiplying because they were murmuring. And murmuring is indicative of a hurt fellowship because we tend to focus on the minutiae. We kind of get self-absorbed versus self-aware. In this case, it was the Hebraic Jews and the Grecian Jews. So two different cultures, two different nationalities. It's kind of like Anglo versus Hispanic, right? Um, there was the complaining about, should we have chairs or pews? I, I don't know. There was this murmuring going on in the church. And murmuring only leads to two things. One of two things. Either leads to division or it leads to ministry. I love the story about two men who, after the Korean War, were placed in the hospital because of their injuries and their illnesses. And these two, young, these two men were placed in a very small room at this urban hospital, and they each had one bed and one locker and one window and one door because they had to be very still. They had to be quiet to help the healing take place. Well, as part of one of the men's therapy each day, he was propped up on his bed. I guess that had something to do with the draining of his lungs. Propped up on the bed, and he could look out the window. And he, began, he could see what was going on. Well, these two men had to be very, very still and very quiet. No radio, no television, nothing like that. That was part of their treatment, was to be still. So they had to lay flat for the entire day, except this one hour when this, young, when this man got to look out the window. Of course, the disadvantages of that uh, I mean, there's, there were some advantages. They didn't have the normal hustle and bustle of the ward and all that stuff, right? But the disadvantage was they were just kind of had, had to be quiet and be still. However, they could talk to each other. So they talked for hours about their lives, about what they did in the war, about their families, what their, their career used to be before they got sick, etc. And then every day for one hour, this one man got to be propped up on his bed and he was able to look out the window. And so he would share what was going on out in the park. And the other man would just listen and absorb it. And the, and the man in front of the window would talk about uh, the, the, the kids feeding the ducks, talk about the ball game going on at the softball field. He would talk about the people holding hands and walking through the park and the kids feeding the ducks with bread and go on and on for that entire hour. 
Well, one afternoon, apparently, there was a parade outside the window. And so the man began to describe that. Well, the other man began to get jealous. He thought, why shouldn't I get a chance to look out the window? Then he felt ashamed, right? He started feeling bad. Why, why am I thinking that way? I shouldn't think that way. But the more he tried not to think that way, the worse he wanted to change. He'd do anything. In a few days, he turned kind of sour. You know how that complaining, that murmuring becomes anger, then it becomes bitterness, right? I should be by the window, he thought. And he began to brood. In fact, he couldn't sleep for, for nights. Well, one night, as he was staring at the ceiling, the other man in the other bed began coughing. And he began gasping for air. Apparently, the fluid was building up in his lungs. He couldn't reach the call button for the nurse. And he was coughing and, and, and having a terrible time breathing, choking. And then it stopped. And then the breathing stopped. And the man continued to stare at the ceiling. In the morning, the day nurse came in and brought water for their baths and found that the one man had passed away. He had died that night. So they took the body away quietly, no fuss. And assume it seemed decent, the other man asked if he could be moved to that bed so he could see out the window. And so they did, and they tucked him in and, you know, told him to be still and be quiet, and they left. Well, the minute they were gone, he propped himself up on one elbow in spite of the pain, and he looked out the window, and it faced a blank wall. Murmuring. What does it get us? Division, bitterness, jealousy, resentment discontent. But I'm so thankful in this example in Acts chapter 6, the murmuring, though, becomes ministry. Up in chapter, uh, the first four verses again, in those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Verse 2, the twelve gathered all the disciples together. Hey, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. We, in other words, we understand what God has called us to do and the priority we have. Verse 3, Brothers, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the Word. First of all, they talked about the daily distribution. That's the Greek word, diakoneo. And it simply means, it's two, two words, a compound word, dia, which means through, or the channel of an act, and konia, which means dirt. What does that mean? Right? It doesn't mean spread the dirt. What it does mean is stirring up the dirt and a need for activity. There's something that needs to happen. Deacons need to be active at ministering to people. And then it says to wait on. And that's the Greek word diakonos, where we get our word deacon. It comes originally from that Greek word. And it simply means servant, attendant, a minister to. So there was uh, a need, some complaining. There was a need to wait on some people. And so this idea of diakonos or diakon, deacon 
is, is demonstrated in God's Word in the first church to minister to the needs of the people. So the first deacons were the ones who served and ministered to those needs. In verse 3, it says, we're going to give them this responsibility. Responsibility. So what is a deacon's responsibility? I'm going to get into this a little bit more next week. But in, in just, it's simply to meet needs, to minister to people. It's not to run the church. That's, there's no biblical picture of that at all. That actually came out of the whole business world in the early 1900s. But to serve and to head off murmuring, right? When they hear murmuring, what do they do with that? It's like a shepherd and a sheep. You care for the flock that God has given you. The ministry is the business of meeting needs that people have. And it promotes healing. And it heads off murmuring. And it is then ministry. You see, ministry is simply meeting people's needs. When the needs are met, we get our eyes off of ourselves. There will be no murmuring. And sometimes it's kind of like doing the right thing even when it's not the easy thing. And it's practicing the presence of Jesus and the presence of others. That's what deacons are supposed to do. A school teacher was assigned to visit a large city hospital. And she received a routine call from another teacher to help uh, a student who was in the hospital to uh, tutor him while he was in the hospital so he wouldn't fall behind his other classmates. And so this teacher called the hospital teacher and said, hey, we're studying nouns and adverbs, uh, and so would you please go and, and work with this young boy because we don't want him to get behind in class. She said, okay. But it wasn't until the visiting teacher got outside the boy's room that she realized it was located in the hospital burn unit. No one had prepared her for that. This young boy had been terribly burned. He was in great pain. And she felt like she couldn't just walk away, right? She had already said she would do it. And so she pressed forward. So she walked into the room and she looked at the young boy. and She said, I'm the hospital teacher and your teacher sent me to help you with your nouns and adverbs. And then she did. Well, the next morning, the teacher came back and the nurse said, what did you do to that boy? Well, the teacher began to apologize. And the nurse said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We've been very worried about him. <coughs> but ever since you were here yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back. He's responding to treatment. It's as though he decided to live. Well, the boy later on explained that he had given up hope. He decided he was just going to die. But all changed when that teacher came, and with joyful tears down his cheeks, the little boy said this, they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? You see, that's what ministry is. It's bringing hope to people who are hopeless. It's bringing hope, bringing hope and, and love and concern to people who need it. Now, it's interesting that the murmuring led to ministry. What does ministry lead to? Verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It leads to multiplication. 
There was multiplication from 3,000 people to 25,000 people. Then there was murmuring, which caused division. And then there was ministry, which met needs. And we come full circle back to multiplication. Multiplication is the product of three things. They're on the outline. I think I've given them to you. In verse 3, we see the need for the Holy Spirit. It says, Choose seven among you who are known to be full of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit provides an atmosphere of oneness, an openness to serve. All of us here that are Christ followers have the Holy Spirit in us. That's what draws us together. In loving people well, we do through the Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We do it as the Spirit urges us. And that means getting our eyes off ourselves. Folks, spiritual growth is never convenient. Have you noticed that? It never comes at convenient times. But we need to be available in those moments to walk with people as the Spirit guides them. Secondly, multiplication is a product of the Holy Spirit, but it's also the product of prayer. The leader's prayer life, a deacon's prayer life, is critical for for several reasons. First of all, nothing of significance happens apart from prayer. You know why? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from knowing God and what Jesus is doing and how the Holy Spirit is working, anything we do won't last. As we pray, we discern what God is doing. And as Henry Blackaby says, we join him. By faith, we join him. Prayer is essential because a servant leader must be filled with and in tune with the Spirit, and we do that through prayer. Prayer is simply a conversation with God. It's not a hit list. It's not a Santa list. It's a conversation with God. And part of that conversation is what? Listening. Listening, reading through the Word of God singing a song, hearing from God's Spirit. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. When you search for me with all your heart. Prayer gets our heart right. It also helps us to know God's wisdom and His agenda for what's taking place. Prayer also is powerful because God is powerful and He's the one that does what only He can do. And the only way we know that is through prayer through spending time with him. Um, I was talking with, with you about my wife earlier, and she just retired as a nurse after 25 years, and now she's falling apart. <laughs> she's like, I shouldn't have retired. She had to have a molar removed, and she only had four left. Then she has sciatica and a bulging disc. She's like, I should go back to work. This retirement thing is killing me, right? Well, we've been married 44 years. And I can pretty much finish her sentences for her. She's smarter than I am anyway, so she already knows my sentences. (laughs) Why? Because we've spent time together. That's what prayer is. Prayer is spending time with God and getting to know His heart. And prayer, by the way, is the best remedy for stress. Every time I drive down here on I-25, I pray. (laughs) Every time I got to go to Denver tomorrow on Tuesday, I'll be praying, trust me. Right? I get up early before all them other people get up, and I pray. <laughs> I like what it says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, bring your request, your request to God. 
And God will hear that. You know, it's interesting to me here in, in Acts, uh, as we think about prayer, that God answered the prayers of his people by raising up this people and made them aware of who these people were. But multiplication is a product of the Holy Spirit prayer, but thirdly, faith. Verse 5, it says there were men full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Full of faith. Faith to believe God and trust God and serve God's people. There's two individuals that are named here, Stephen and Philip. Stephen, in the next chapter, ends up becoming a preacher. He proclaims the good news. And what's it get him? He's killed for it in Acts chapter 4. He's killed for it. He's the first martyr. A deacon, not an apostle, is the first martyr. So if you feel called to be a deacon, get ready. Just saying. And then Philip. Philip is actually called to Samaria and leads a revival in Samaria. And God shows up in a powerful way. And then God picks him up out of a revival and that's a whole nother sermon, takes him to a dirt road. And he leads one guy to Christ, and that guy changed his nation. God uses deacons in the early church to, to basically unleash the gospel. Just like he did way back in the Old Testament with Abraham. Remember Abraham? In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham was called of God to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance. He obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. Now, my grandfather, who passed away a number of years ago, I always thought that's what Abraham looked like was my grandpa. He just kind of had that way. He was the spiritual man in my house. My dad wasn't, so he kind of, he was the guy who had a spiritual impact on my life. Now, every time I'd go see him over in Canyon City, I'd think, well, this is what Abraham looked like, right? Now, I can imagine Abraham's neighbors. Abraham's packing up, and one of his neighbors comes over and says, Abraham, what are you doing? He says, I'm packing. You're packing. That's right. We're moving. Why in the world would you want to leave Ur? That's where they lived, Ur. You couldn't think of a better name, so they just went, Ur. I live in the town of Ur, right? Why do you want to leave? Uh, well, God's made it clear I should go. And the neighbor goes, God, huh? Him again. Where are you going? I don't know. He didn't tell me. Neighbor said, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You know you ought to go, but you don't know anything beyond that, huh? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's all we can say. We've been worried about you, Abraham, for a long time. And now we think you have gone off the deep end. Well, you know, faith is kind of going off the deep end. That's what it is. Ministry is going off the deep end. Um, none of us are prepared for ministry. We're just not. Now, we can go through training and so forth. I'm a, chair, I'm a chaplain with the Black Forest Fire Department. I got a call Saturday, no, Friday, on a death call. I don't get many of those, but when they have a death situation, they'll often ask the family members, would you like our chaplain to come by? And most of the time they say no or they already have a pastor or whatever. Well, this family said yes. So Eric Beckstrom, one of our firefighters, called me, said, hey, could you come? So I quickly got my act together and 
put my shirt on and went. A 52-year-old young man with Down syndrome. Well, 50 is pretty old for a Down syndrome person, if you didn't know that. Um, and so I sat with the dad. And the dad's in his 70s, and he made the statement like a lot of us would. Your children aren't supposed to die before you. And yet this happened. So what's my role there? My role is to minister to that family. I don't hardly ever know what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do. But, you know, the Holy Spirit works. He was, the father was not a religious man. Didn't even want me to pray. Uh, the young man, his, he was living, uh, the, the young man that died and his father were living with the father's daughter, so the young man's sister. And she was just beside her. She saw me. She just hugged me, weeped, just wailing. And her husband was there. And so I prayed with them. But the dad didn't want to have anything to do with it. I said, do you want me to go in? When we finally were able to go in, you know, oftentimes they have to wait for the coroner to come. You can't go in and touch the body and move anything. And so when the coroner came out, we kind of walked back there. And as you can tell, they were just heartbroken, weeping. Um, touching their son and brother, and I just kind of stood back. I was praying for them and their family. And they said their the father said my my son was a religious boy. So tell me about that. And he would read the Bible, actually write verses out. I went into his room, and it was an incredible testimony of this young man. And so I just began to pray for this family quietly on my own. Uh, I never know what I'm going to get into, but I tell you what, the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit will give you the right thing to say at the right time. As a deacon, you're going to walk into situations you've never walked into before. I had a situation one time where a guy had a gun on the dining room table. And I wasn't smart enough to call 911. But I got one of my deacons to go with me. And we sat down and had a conversation. Finally, I just said, you know, that gun's making me really nervous. Can I? Oh, yeah, yeah. But God is, is faithful. And our job is to be faithful, right? God, here I go. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to trust you. i never forget, um, if you've never read the story of Alexander the Great, his, his biographer, you need to read it. His biographer describes the panic that the Greek army felt when Alexander died. Because he died when they were literally on the border of India and China, they had gone all the way across Asia Minor. You know what they'd done? They'd walked off the map. They didn't have any maps beyond where they were. They literally walked off the map. Well, that's what faith is. Faith is walking off the map. It's going off the deep end. It's saying, okay, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to trust you. And so... You and I, as God's children, are called to be that. In Philippians chapter 2, listen to what Paul writes. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort with His love, if any fellowship with His Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, when you have my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. United in Christ 
is the exact opposite of division. And so as a servant leader, as a deacon, as any of us in this room, all of us in this room are leaders, by the way. We all, you know what the greatest definition of leadership is? Influence. Influence. Every one of us in this room has a sphere of influence. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I a servant leader or am I a self-serving leader? To be a servant leader means we lead, we lead like Jesus, and that requires humility. Jim Collins said this, A leader with a humble heart looks out the window to find and applaud the true causes of success. Other people, right? But a, a true leader looks in the mirror to find and accept responsibility for failure. We just need to look at ourselves. People with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. Humility is realizing and emphasizing the importance of others. It's not putting yourself down. It's raising others up. And that's what a servant leader does. Now, next week, I'm going to break down the Timothy passage a little bit more, and we're going to talk about some of the characteristics of a deacon. But the critical element is just like here in Acts chapter 6, we need to be a servant leader. We need to be willing to wait the tables. We need to be willing to do whatever it takes, even if it's not in our job description. Why? Because ministry always curtails murmuring, and ministry leads to multiplication. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this church. I thank you for your word and the instruction it gives us concerning deacons, and I pray for this church, and I pray for the deacons of this church, and even as they perhaps are looking at new men to step into that deacon role, I pray, God, you will give them clarity. I pray they'll go back to your word and search out the real meaning and purpose of deacons. And Lord, I pray that you will just help them discern your spirit's movement and what these individuals need to be about. Thank you so much for Pastor Greg and his influence here. I thank you for the other leaders here, for the privilege of getting to know them over the last couple of years. I just pray blessing on this church. And God, as we prepare to leave here in a little bit, I pray that we'll be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. A prayer, time of invitation, time to just lift up the needs of our church family. Thanks, Bill, for that truth in that. He'll talk, as he said, Next week, a little bit more about the qualifications and that. But just be in prayer for our church family today. Be in prayer for our community, for the opportunities that we get to share his word and proclaim and see his gospel move. Uh, we'll have time here to sing, and um, you can come and pray. You can, if you have a decision to make, you're more than welcome to come and talk and pray with me now. Mm-hmm.